You're listening to Past and Present, the Colonial Williamsburg Podcast. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Harmony Hunter. Professor Jim Wittenberg teaches history in a whole new way, and his students love him for it. He's gotten all kinds of awards for his novel approach, from the College of William & Mary, where he teaches, all the way to the Princeton Review. Professor Wittenberg, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. Well, we're an institution that's interested in teaching history, and when I heard about you and your approach to history, I thought, well, we've got to talk to this guy. Tell me about how you started teaching history in a way that's, that's so different from the usual presentation in the classroom. I was looking for something that could better explain uh, social history. Uh, and it is certainly possible to get that from documents I'd, and other um, media as well, film, things of that sort. But I, I really believe that uh, being where people lived and events took place helps students uh, to understand uh, what the people were like at the time, how they interacted, and what was going on uh, in their minds when they uh, acted. So that's what you do. You take students to the places where these events took place and the places where these people lived. Correct, yes. I began doing it uh, at Colonial Williamsburg the very first year I was at William & Mary, which was 35 years ago in a course called Early American Social History. And I took them to just about every site that was available. Why is it important to you to teach this way, to go to the sites? Well, I found that uh, there's more than one reason. I find that the sites uh, are evocative of uh, the uh, 17th or 18th or 19th century, depending on what I'm doing. Uh, that uh, at that point in a way that you simply can't approach in a classroom. Uh, there's a degree of reality that comes across to the students uh, in walking down the Duke of Gloucester Street that I don't believe you can achieve uh, simply by talking to them in a classroom or having them talk to you uh, in, a, in any other way except actually being on the Duke of Gloucester Street. Then they begin to understand uh, the things that they read. Uh, all of my classes are built around deep reading in some of the uh, very best literature, I think, <laughs> on uh, early America. Uh, but the printed page alone is uh, inadequate uh, to actually being uh, on the Ducal Gloucester Street. Uh, to be able to touch, uh, as you can, uh, in some places uh, in Colonial Williamsburg, as well as to see and to hear, use all of the senses. Uh, I think that helps the students uh, to understand what they're reading about. Uh, it's another sort of primary source. And I think that's, that's become accepted uh, within the history profession. Do you find that you get the same impact when you go to visit a site that might be in ruins? as Rosewell is in Gloucester County, one of my favorite uh, places to go, yes. Rosewell is very imposing. Uh, it was uh, the largest, uh, grandest personal residence probably in British North America. Uh, and it is mostly down, I'd say half down now, but the, just walking around it and, 
and uh, understanding uh, your size as opposed to its size, what someone would have seen standing in front of, of the place. I think the, the students really began to understand what that means uh, um, for uh, the super gentry, as I call them, uh, the truly, truly elite uh, families of Virginia. Well, of course, one of the main um, things that appealed to me about your method of teaching history is that it reminds me so much of Colonial Williamsburg's mission to set up these buildings and recreate this physical Absolutely. space. Yeah. Um, and it seems like something that visitors who come to Colonial Williamsburg or, or visitors that go to any living history museum or historic site can do, that there's some special added virtue in um, seeing the actual place, standing in the actual footsteps. One of the sites that you use in your class is a site that people can visit at Colonial Williamsburg, the Peyton Randolph House. What are some of the themes that you try to uncover and, and try to put your finger on when you visit that site? Uh, the Peyton Randolph property is uh, diverse in the things that, uh, that it tells. It's also something of a mystery to me. Uh, why would Peyton Randolph uh, choose to live in uh, a wooden house that's in fact two houses cobbled together. The earliest part of that property is one of the oldest, very oldest uh, buildings in Williamsburg. It's even oriented uh, towards uh, England Street rather than towards uh, the Duke of Gloucester Street. Uh, so which marks it as uh, having been built at a time when people, residents, didn't know how Williamsburg was going to develop. When I've gone into the Peyton Randolph house, I've seldom gone in the front door. Almost always it's been the side door, uh, the front door for the 1715 uh, part of the house. And you're immediately ushered up very winding stairs. Uh, and then ultimately you find your way to the center staircase, which is uh, very grand. And the contrast of this very early uh, staircase that's sort of shoved out of the way uh, with the grand staircase where entries could be made by the family coming down to, uh, to their guests, I think talks about social change. Uh, the way uh, in which buildings can be used, uh, were used. So we should remind folks who Peyton Randolph is. He's an extremely uh, prominent and would he, would he qualify as one of your super gentry? Oh, absolutely. Peyton Randolph is the uh, Speaker of the House of Bur Burgesses. He comes from an old Virginia, in fact, an old England uh, family of a lot of power and a lot of wealth and a lot of standing. So when we look at his house, uh, we can understand some of the mysteries, as you've pointed mm -hmm. out, um, of how the super gentry present themselves to society, but also about what goes on behind the scenes in that household. He had a yes. multitude of um, enslaved people working mm -hmm. for him on that site? Yes, I believe the top number is 27, as the largest that were ever there. Only four lived in the house. <laughs> the rest are in, in other uh, buildings. They sleep in other buildings, particularly the, the kitchen that's uh, been reconstructed. So the interaction of black and white uh, is um, available to visitors there, accessible to visitors there. Uh, the added feature at the Randolph property is uh, that you have uh, master and slave living on uh, the same relatively small urban 
plantation. And I like uh, for students to think about uh, uh, this complex uh, situation, interaction of, uh, of black and white. Uh, what, what was the life of uh, the enslaved people at the, uh, the Randolph property? To what degree did uh, Peyton and Betty Randolph interact uh, in the lives of, uh, of their enslaved people? In what ways? Going to these sites really lets you hear the echoes of that history. One of the other things that's very telling from the Peyton Randolph site that you talk about is um, the food that would have yeah. been available to the different classes of people, mm -hmm. depending on who you are in the world, defines what you get to eat. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, the, I love the dining room at the Peyton Randolph house, uh, especially when they have the calves head uh, on the uh, on the side. No. <laughs> but uh, if nothing else, the students will get out of this that there are uh, vast differences between taste in the 18th century and taste uh, in the 20th century. And at the Randolph house, you not only see this displayed in in the dining room, uh, but who prepares it and. Here again, we have that intersection of black and white. That's uh, Betty Randolph's not even in the kitchen supervising. It's uh, the other Betty, um, that uh, uh, the enslaved Betty, and and the other uh, enslaved people at uh, at the Peyton Randolph house uh, that do all of the food preparation and all of the service um, as well. I love this method that you use of reading some background material, doing some research, and then visiting the site. And I feel like it's something that could be duplicated by anybody uh, anywhere in the United States. If somebody wanted to take this approach um, to visiting a historic site in Virginia or in whatever state they live, uh, how would you recommend that they go about doing it, getting the most out of that kind of an exercise? I think you need a purpose. Uh, you need to have an objective. When we were in grade school, uh, it, and we took um, a field trip. It was, you know, get on the bus, drive to the place, get off the bus, see something, get back on the bus, and go home again. And it was never clear to me um, why we were <laughs> why we were at the courthouse in Rome, Georgia. <laughs> you know? uh, so I think the first thing is to decide what it is you're trying to get over. Uh, what uh, uh, what can this site tell us uh, that's important? And once you have established uh, an objective, once that happens, I, then things kind of fall into place uh, naturally, I think. So the real key is uh, to decide what is the message that you want to get over to the students and how can this site um, help me get that message over. And you're right, I think you can do this anywhere. Thank you so much for sharing this with us today. It's a, it's a simple but really ingenious method that I hope a lot of people will pick up on when they visit us here in Colonial Williamsburg or when, when they visit any historic site. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Do you have a question or suggestion for the show? Leave a comment at podcast.history.org.